Good morning again. Uh, it's good to see uh, you here this morning. I pray that you are eager to hear the word of our Lord speak to you today. So let's pray. Father, God, we bow before you. And Lord, we ask that you would reign in our hearts, Lord. God, we ask that you would rule in our hearts. That, Father, you would come and you would open up our ears that we might hear. You would open up our eyes that we might see. You would loosen our stubborn wheels that we would rightly respond to what you will say to us today. Father, so often, God, we're immediately rushing to look for some practical application in our lives. But it's not about us. It's about You. And God, the great response of the human heart to Your Word is to worship You. And oh, how I pray that we will worship You today, the great and mighty God. For You are Lord. In Jesus, we proclaim all praise to You. Help me to speak, Lord. Speak for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn again to the book of Daniel. Turn again to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, we're going to hang out in Daniel for a little while, it seems. It's what God has planted within my heart. Uh, we leaped into chapter 3 last week and we went in to a fiery furnace, but we saw that we were not alone, for there was a fourth one there, and he was Jesus, our Christ. Amen and amen. Well, Daniel chapter 4, uh, we're going to visit this morning what is one of the more unique chapters in all of your Bible. It's unique, especially, specifically in the book of Daniel. You say, well, what makes it unique? This chapter, chapter 4, was not written by Daniel. It was not written by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I will say Daniel may have had a little editing influence in it. But it wasn't written by a prophet. It wasn't written by an apostle. There's no such thing as an apostle until the church comes along. It wasn't even written by a Jew. The fourth chapter in the book of Daniel is by Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know that? Did you know? I'm sure Daniel added a few things, but this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. This is Nebuchadnezzar. I would hang over this particular passage, the title, The Testimony of a Converted King. Hyphen. From haughtiness to humility. Guys, this is amazing grace in chapter 4. What we're going to witness is really something that shouldn't just be unique to a king, 
but really should be the experience and is the experience of every one of us who have come to know Jesus Christ. There's no different way of coming to God. There's one way. Nebuchadnezzar came to the living God by His grace, as we'll see in Daniel chapter 4. Wow. I want to read to you the first three verses, but then we'll weave in and out of this chapter as we're looking at the things that the Spirit of God is saying in this chapter through Nebuchadnezzar. But chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now this is the Word of the Lord. I say this king can't be quiet. This king has been impacted by the reality of who God is. He's wanting to tell the world, all peoples, let me tell you what this God has done for me. And how we shouldn't be any different, Christian, if God has touched our lives and God has impacted our lives. Let me help you get a feel for what's going on in chapter 4. The king begins to tell about how on one occasion he had a very disturbing dream. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, in verse 4, the next verse, it says that he was alarmed and he was afraid by what he saw. He had this dream and he wondered what it meant. it, it absolutely terrified him. This dream of this large tree that grew up and could be seen by all people all around and it was, had much fruit upon it and it was shade for the, for the animals and it was a, a beautiful tree, a strong tree. He said there was a watcher, a holy one from the Lord that came down and chopped down the tree, left its stump. And he was troubled by this. He was troubled. So he called for, as any pagan would, all the astrologers and enchanters and all of the seers and all kinds of people with all of their occultic, false demon insight to try and interpret the dream. And they could not. So he calls for Daniel, whom he had changed the name to Belshazzar, to come. And Daniel does. Let me read to you just a little bit about this disturbing dream. Uh, beginning in verse 10 of the fourth chapter, chapter um, we read this. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and it became strong. Its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and its 
It was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the, the, of the heavens let, lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the, in, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives, gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw in you, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods. Here's this polytheism coming out. Is in you. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. Now you got to understand, Daniel was a little bit disturbed by what he was seeing in the dream. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar could be a hothead. And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what this is. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. You are the one that has grown strong. You're the one whose kingdom has, has grown. You're the one. He said, and the kingdom, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Just as it was given. And Nebuchadnezzar was probably shaken to the core at this thought. That the kingdom would be taken away from him. That he would be driven out to live like a beast of the field that this would happen to him, the great Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel offered him his counsel. He said, sir, stop. Practice righteousness. Stop your sins. Take care of those that are oppressed. And he tells him, basically tells him in an Old Testament way, repent. Repent. Well, I think Nebuchadnezzar wanted to try and just push this out of his mind. This thought of the kingdom being taken from him. The thought of this dream that alarmed him becoming a reality. Perhaps he wanted to just think, well, maybe Daniel was wrong this time. Maybe, maybe that was the product of eating some fried Babylonian chicken late one night. That's why I had that dream. Maybe he was a little, he was dismissive of it. Perhaps. Well, time goes on. After he hears the interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar prospers. His prosperity grows. His kingdom grows. 
He finally conquers Egypt. Matter of fact, Egypt had been his great enemy from childhood. He finally conquers Egypt. And when he conquers Egypt, he then has the largest kingdom the world at that time had ever seen. He finishes building the great city of Babylon. His father had started it, but now he's finished it. And the Babylon Babylon that he had had finished was three times larger than that of what his father was doing. It's a beautiful city. It was a wall city. In some places, the wall was, was three levels thick. It was like three walls. He had three palaces. One wasn't enough. One of those palaces you have heard of, it's one of the, of the, the seven wonders of the world, the, 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 the palace of the hanging gardens. So Nebuchadnezzar probably is beginning to think that was just a dream and only a dream. There was no reality to it because you see, about a year's time passes from when he saw this dream. And he forgot what was decreed. He forgot the interpretation. But then, boom! As quickly as the kingdom was given, the kingdom was taken away. Because it is God that rules over the affairs of men. It is God that sets up kings and takes kings down. It's God that will set up a president and take a president down. It's God ultimately that does it. Now, it is a pitiful sight what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But what I want you to understand, and what I want you to see as we walk through this particular event today. I want you to understand what looked like Nebuchadnezzar's destruction was not going to destroy him forever. Because what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, God was setting him up by driving him out from the kingdom and amongst the animals of the field. God was setting him up for his great deliverance. Hallelujah! You see, your life, some of you, was pretty bad. The sin was growing pretty powerful in your life. And it looked like perhaps you had just about totally destroyed your life. But then you got pushed all the way to the point of where it looked like there was no hope. And you came to the end of yourself. But it was in that moment when you hit rock bottom that God was getting ready to raise you up and to save your soul and to make you a new creature. Does anybody know anything about that? (laughs) You see, that's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's look at this. There's three major things I, I want to help you to see what's going on in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Now... The first thing I want you to take note of, and this is his great problem, is the problem of pride. The problem of pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a man full of pride. He was proud. He was arrogant. He was haughty. He was full of himself. He was the narcissist of narcissists if you will. 
Nebuchadnezzar. He looked out at his kingdom and he thought about his kingdom. And you know what he said about his kingdom? He said in verse 30 of chapter 4, he said, It's is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory and my majesty. He's all focused on himself. He was a man full of pride. Now what is pride? Pride is this. Let me define pride this way. Pride is self-exaltation. Pride is self-exaltation. Pride, and listen, God hates pride. He said it in the book of Proverbs. It's one of the sins he said, which God explicitly says He hates it. Why? Because pride is antithetical to the nature of who God is. You see, God is about God's glory. God is about being exalted. And our great joy and our great pleasure is only known and found in God's glory. And, 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 and pride... Pride takes away from the glory of God. That's why. Because pride is such a deadly and damning thing in our lives. That's why the Bible will say that God is opposed to the proud. But gives grace to the humble. He hates pride. Pride destroys the wicked. Pride destroys. Pride comes. What comes before a great fall, writes Paul in the book of Corinthians. Pride comes before the fall. Pride. Nebuchadnezzar was full of it. You can go through the entire first few chapters of the book of Daniel and you can see it. His pride is seen in his self-idolization. We saw it last week in chapter 3. He made this huge statue which we believe was probably a replica of himself. And what was his decree? He may have thought he was trying to do this to unify the people, but it was really all about himself. He had this decree where he sent it out. Here I am. I am Nebuchadnezzar. This is me. I, this is me. Bow and worship me. Full of his pride. We see his pride and his self-confidence in verse 30 that I read in chapter 4 where he talked about how he did all this stuff and built this great city by his power, for his majesty, for himself. His pride is seen in his anger in chapters 2 and 3 when, when, when the people wouldn't bow and worship this huge statue that he had in chapter 3. He would become angry and said, you're going to burn in the flames. The burning, fiery furnace, as the text calls it. Even Daniel, whom he had come to grow and like in chapter 3, he gave him a chance to bow before him and he wouldn't, but the Bible says he became so furious, if you remember, he had the, he had the furnace heated up seven times and it overheated. He was so angry. Why? Because he didn't get the glory that he thought he deserved. And so he was angry. His pride is seen in his false theology. His theology was polytheistic. Yes, he recognized because of one called Daniel, because of one called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, that's who he called them. Their names were different as you saw from chapter 1 last week. But... He acknowledged their God. He knew that Yahweh was 
a reality, but he didn't want to see him as the most high God. He wanted to put him on the level of all the 2,400 false gods that they worshipped in Babylon. He's just one of them. (laughs) And that's his pride. Because he wanted to exalt 2,400 false gods. There may have been more. We just have a historical record of 2,400 Babylonian gods. You see his false theology and and how he even refers to to Daniel. In him is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. No, there's only one God. We saw in the vision of chapter 3 last night when he saw the fourth one in the fire. The literal reading from the Hebrew is I saw one like a son of the gods. Plural. Why did he say that? Because he's a polytheist. He's a polytheist. He thinks there are billions of gods. And I could go into a little take on how we see it in the church today with the false idea that ye are gods and it's perverting Old Testament passages. There's one God. (laughs) One God. And He rules. And He reigns. So we see His pride. His pride is seen in his failure to recognize God's favor in his life. God had favor on him. That's why he was in the position he was in. God had favor on him. That's why he allowed him to be ruling and reigning when they captured these Jewish Hebrew people so that he would come to a place where he would be confronted with the reality of who God is. God had favor on him, but he refused to recognize it. It was all about him. It was all about his power and his strength. It was all about Nebuchadnezzar. But oh my, don't think pride is just the great problem of kings of a pagan nation. There is great pride in oh, little old us. Little old us. Pride is a sin that does not just affect some people Every human being born into this world has the tendency by nature to be full of pride. To set themselves up as their own determiner of what's right and wrong. To set themselves up as superior to God's law. To set themselves up as the boss of their own life. As the controller of their own destiny. To set themselves up as the center of their own little middle class American universe. Oh. It's not just the problem of kings and rulers and rich people. You see, I like what MacArthur said about this particular passage. He said, there is a warning to us who may never rule any empire other than the little one we invent for ourselves. He goes on and says, And we who in our simplicity of a very uncomplex life and in our lack of public notoriety build an empire and crawl on top and crown ourselves king. So this is a warning to us also, end quote. 
I want you to be understanding that this issue of pride is something that every sinner relates to. And you're full of pride if you don't think you relate to it. Because pride is the root of all sin. Pride is. All sin says, I'm wiser than God. I can find more satisfaction in my rebellion to whatever God has said because I'm wiser than God and I know what I need. All sin, all sin has at its root pride. And so pride incubates in the human heart and it gives birth to great evil. Pride is the original sin. It is. You think about it. It was pride in the garden. When Satan comes before Eve in Genesis the third chapter and says, Now did God really say you shall not eat? of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did He really? Come on, Eve. You see, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you shall become like God. So, Eve, with pride, deceived with pride, ate of the fruit. Why? She wanted to become a God. You see, that's the same. Satan's been selling that lie ever since the beginning. You can look to New Age philosophy and thoughts and teachings today that you are your own God. You can even look in areas of the so-called church that try and teach that ye are your own gods. And that is a perversion of the context of what the Old Testament talks about when you find that phrase. And Jesus deals with it in John chapter 10. I don't have time to go there though. Now, Pride is a serious issue. It is what put us in this position of needing a Savior to begin with. It is what brought and caused this whole creation to come under the curse. It's pride. And what's going and flowing through the veins of Nebuchadnezzar is what is flowing through the veins of every single person in here who does not come to Christ. It is. It is. You see, millennia before the garden, it is the very thing that gave us Satan. The one known as Lucifer. In the book of Isaiah chapter number 14, let me show you Satanic pride. And this is part of why God hates pride so much. Over in the book of Isaiah, let me read to you this. Isaiah 14. Let me just read to you, beginning in verse 12. Uh, This is 
The Lord speaking, He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you're cut down to the ground. You laid the nations low. Here's the great sin of Satan. He goes and he says in verse 13, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stones of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And that is the reality of all sinners lost in their sin. Well, God is so good and so gracious that God decreed to save Nebuchadnezzar from the very sin he hates. You see... About a year after this dream that he had that shook him to the core, the time had came for the dream to be fulfilled. And the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was driven out like a madman. So the second thing that I would bring out to you is we've seen the problem of pride, but now we see the psychosis of the proud. We see his madness, his insanity. Listen to what the text says in verse 31 of the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. All right, remember verse 30. He was just gloating in his pride. Is it not I that have built the the city? Is it not I that have done this for my glory and majesty? And verse 31 says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven out from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was set with the dew of heaven's Till his hair grew so long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like the bird, like bird claws. Here he was, living it up in his palace. Had everything that he needed. And in a moment, God says, I put you in this position. I'll put you out of this position. And he's acting like a madman. Has no hygiene, hair growing, nails growing long, eating grass. I used to think about Nebuchadnezzar every time I saw LSU play football with their former coach and he would pick up the grass of the field. He would eat a little of it. Guys, Nebuchadnezzar has hit the bottom. He is in a pit. The sovereign grace of God 
drives this self-exalting, self-confident man to pure madness. And grace takes him from the pinnacle of pride to the valley of humiliation. For in the humility of the valley, he will find life. (laughs) It looks like it's all over for him. But for seven periods of time, it's set a decree. For seven periods of time, this was going to be what it was going to be like to. Now, you know, we can argue over what seven periods of time is. Some people say, well, that was a year. Some people say this was days. Some people say it was months. It doesn't really matter. Seven does have significance in that it is the the number of divine perfection. And all you need to know is that he was going to be in this state for the perfect time until the perfect time had accomplished that which God had decreed. You see, he hit rock bottom here. You see, apart, he had to be humbled. Hear me, he had to be humbled. Every sinner has to be humbled. It's not an option. It's not an option. Coming to the end of oneself. Apart from humility, apart from the coming to the end of oneself, sufficiency and self-reliance, There is no salvation. Listen, you can pray for salvation a billion times, but without being broken by the conviction of pride and sin, there is no life. None. Sometimes we see these mass evangelistic events, which are great and wonderful, But you see scores of people who walk down an aisle with a haughtiness in their heart and they leave with a haughtiness in their heart thinking because they repeated some prayer they're saved, but they're full of pride and they're not saved. Prayer, salvation, I've said it once, I'll say it a hundred times. Salvation is not in some little prayer. It's not in some little ritual you do. It's by coming to the end of yourself and relying and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. You repent of your self-sufficiency. You repent of your self-effort. You repent of your little works and your little reliance on your little religious stuff. And you come to Jesus Christ and you rely, you depend, Depend on Him and Him alone and what His grace has provided. Any other way is a false gospel. Now, I like the way, I like the way that John Piper describes this. He says, and I quote, God bends our stiff necks and pushes our face to the ground because that's where the streams of life are flowing, end quote. In some ways, this also reminds me of the prodigal son. A wealthy young man who squandered his father's wealth and went out on wild living, but where did he come to his senses? The Bible says he came to his right mind where? And a bunch, a bunch of pigs. He was wallowing in the mud. And he came to his senses. Well, it's the same way here with Nebuchadnezzar. 
<laughs> Which brings me to the third thing. After driving him to eat grass like a maniac, if after seven periods of time, he came to his senses because God knew that he would come to his senses and he embraced and praised the living God as God. That he embraced the living God as the God who sets kings up and takes kings down. He submitted to the authority of Almighty God. Listen to these words. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven. Among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time. Time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all His works are right, His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. <laughs> Hallelujah! God saved a pagan king. God saved a man who set up an idol for himself. Demanded worship. God saved him. God changed him. Just like he can save you and change you. I don't care how long you've been playing church games, acting like everything's alright when you know something's wrong deep within your soul. I want you to understand, as long as there's something in you that's concerned over the condition of your heart, and you really want to be right, and you want to be real, God is able to save you for what is impossible within your own power and your own strength is possible with God. For He is mighty to save. Amen. Hallelujah. Grace changed Nebuchadnezzar. It changed him mentally, it changed him emotionally, it changed him spiritually. I would close by asking this question. Has that same sovereign grace, has it changed your pride-filled heart? Now, please hear me. As Christians, we may still struggle with pride and arrogance. Okay? We may still struggle with pride and arrogance, but there is no Christian who is proud before God and their relationship with God. I don't want you to be able to distinguish there a little bit. There is no Christian who is full of that kind of pride. No Christian thinks of becoming a Christian as, 
I did that. And I use that phrase because there have been on more than one occasion that I have shared the gospel with someone and this is the response of this person. Well, I did that. And immediately I know that they have no clue what the gospel is about. You don't do the gospel. You don't do salvation. It's done unto you. By grace, through faith, in Christ. That is the way of salvation. Because you can do nothing. So I ask, I ask, has your pride in regard to your salvation, has it been buried in the valley of humiliation? If not, if you still think that you are earning your way with God, if you still think that you're doing something, you're doing something to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you still think that, then I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what church you've been brought in, it doesn't matter what religious lie you've been fed, it doesn't matter what your man-centered theology is because it is man-centered or you wouldn't think that way. I'm telling you, you must be born again. Today is the day of your salvation. And my God is mighty. Mighty to save. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to ask everyone to stand to your feet. As Angie goes to the piano,